Our sermon passage to, passage today picks up where we left off last week. We're in our sermon series, True and Better, the Gospel of John. This week we'll be in John 3, uh, starting in verse 14, going through verse 18. So if you have your Bible in front of you, turn to John 3, or it'll be for you on your screen. This is God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture. I thank you that through it you are working even now by your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart that we might see the beauty and majesty of Jesus and love him all the the more. I pray that in these moments your Spirit would move, Lord, to help us to understand and see the depth of your love revealed in Jesus Christ, that you would come to us, not in condemnation, but come to free us from the guilt and power of our sin, that we might have eternal life in you. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So there's a tension that runs through the entirety of the Old Testament and is never really resolved within the Old Testament. Um, And it's a tension between the mercy of God and the justice of God. You know, if you read through the Old Testament, from Genesis 1 to Malachi 4, all 622,700 words, you'll see passages pop up time and time again where God declares His intention to be gracious to His people. He's going to be kind and compassionate. And then right beside it, sometimes in the same passage, sometimes in the same sentence, God speaks about His commitment to justice. That God's righteous justice has to happen. That that which is crooked is going to be made straight. That that which is wrong will be made right. That God's righteous justice will be seen in our world of injustice. And this tension, as I said, runs through the the entirety of the Old Testament. Each of the books of the Old Testament kind of keeps ending on a cliffhanger. And it's never really resolved. God says He's going to be merciful and gracious. But we realize, right? That if God is truly just, if He truly judges rightly by sin, or against sin, then there might not be anybody left for Him to be merciful to. <laughs> there might not be anyone left for Him to be kind to. We saw in that passage that we read for our call to worship in Exodus 34. The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He forgives. He abounds in love, right? He forgives w- wickedness and sin and rebellion. But then it says what? He will not leave the guilty unpunished. So which is it, right? Which is going to kind of win out in the end? They almost feel like polar opposites, and they can't both be true and us not be wiped out, right? So it's into this tension that Jesus arrives. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, he doesn't say, I'm here to start something new, forget all the stuff that's come before. Here's Here's my new ideas. No, Jesus comes in the middle of the tension, He takes it on. And in fact, in his life, death, and resurrection, he becomes the place, the point, the person where this tension kind of collides. He becomes the place where the tension resolves, even, the place where the mercy of God and the justice of God 
meet. Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all the promises. He becomes the, uh, the long-awaited answer to all the frustrations. And he tells us he's the one to whom all the stories, all the promises, all the laws, all the tension had pointed all along. Now, in our, test, in our passage today, Jesus is interacting with an, a very important, intelligent, and uh, big man of status named Nicodemus. Um, and Jesus, while he's talking to Nicodemus, he reaches back into the Old Testament, to the history of Israel, um, and uses a couple of images to explain who he is and what he's doing. And what I want to do this morning is look at the second of these. Last week in our sermon, if you heard it, or if you were in person with us at worship, you heard Jesus referred back to the prophet Ezekiel. And he said that he was here to cleanse and to renew people, to wash them, symbolically washed with water, wash their hearts and make them new. When our passage today, he reaches back to Numbers chapter 21 to explain how that's going to happen. So, uh, into our passage. Notice in verse 15, Jesus says to this very important man, Nicodemus, that he's talking to, or uh, verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now this refers back to something that happened way back, 1400 years before the time of Jesus, that very first generation of Israelites who had come out from under Egyptian bondage. And if you want to read it, you can find it in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. And what's going on here is the people of Israel have been freed. They've been brought out from under the thumb of oppressive slavery in Egypt in supernatural fashion. And they've been brought to Mount Sinai where Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And Mount Sinai is kind of like their birth as a nation. It's almost like a new creation is happening. And this, uh, these people who before this were just kind of a hodgepodge collection of 12 tribes that shared a common ancestor, they become a kingdom God calls them a kingdom of priests with God as their king. And as their king, what does God do? He gives them instructions. As a baby nation, a baby kingdom, he gives them laws. He also gives them the tabernacle, which is this symbol, uh, this big tent in the middle of all their tents, where God is essentially saying, I'm dwelling with you. You are my people and I'm your God. And so, not only that, not only does he give them law, instruction. Not only does he give them his, his promised presence in their midst and guidance, he also gives them supernaturally food. See, the Israelites are between their freedom from Egyptian bondage and the freedom of the home where God is leading them, the promised land. They're in the time of the wilderness, this time of in-between, and they're wandering. And God provides for them at every turn. You know, they can't farm because they're moving constantly. What does God do? He provides food every day. They don't have to work for it. They have to just go outside and get it and eat it. They're in places where maybe they didn't see streams or rivers. They needed water. And what does God do? God provides water. He provides for them at every turn. And if this sounds kind of uh, supernatural and extraordinary, it's supposed to. Remember, this was the birth of this uh, new nation through whom God was going to fulfill all of his promises. Uh, this is the unrepeatable beginning of God fulfilling uh, or moving into the next stage of his rescue mission. But what happens? These people have been given the law. They have the tabernacle. They're provided for at every turn. They rebel. 
And in Numbers 21, they say, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They say this to Moses and to God. Why have you freed us from slavery to die in the wilderness? They say that God's intention was to kill them. They say there is no bread, there is no water. Neither of those things were true. And then they say, contradicting themselves, we detest this miserable food. Again, it's food they didn't have to work for. Food they literally just had to eat. And so... Essentially, what the people are saying is we don't want to be in your kingdom. God, you provide for us, but we don't want you to provide for us. You protect us. We don't want you to protect us. And so God, in a sense, gives them what they want. And he removes his care from them. And suddenly, out there in the wilderness, they suddenly face a problem they hadn't had before. It says that they began to be kind of plagued by venomous snakes, asp, who are biting people, and some people are actually dying. And so the people suddenly facing this thing that they hadn't faced before in the wilderness, they cry out for help to God. And what does God tell Moses to do? He tells him to do something strange. He says, Moses, I want you to take a bronze and create a serpent, like a statue. <laughs> and when you make this bronze serpent, I want you to impale it on a stake, lift it in the air. Stick this bronze serpent on a pole, Lift it in the air. And everybody who has been bitten, who looks at this bronze serpent, will be healed. And that's what happens. Now, I know that sounds strange. It sounds almost like a Lord of the Rings kind of thing going on there, right? Um, and But here's what's going on. Here's what's going on. The people have just come from under Egyptian bondage. And what was the symbol of the Pharaoh in Egypt? The asp, the snake. What's happened is they've been freed from slavery. They've been provided for at every turn. God's promised his intentions to them and he's leading them home to a promised land where they'll be free and secure, where he will be their God and they will be his people in this land of flourishing. And they said they don't want that. They want to go back. They want to go back to slavery. They want to go back to Pharaoh, to the serpent. And so when God removes his care, they are suddenly plagued by what? Serpents. And so what God does to drive home that he is the victorious one, that he is truly king. What God does is he has, in a sense, the symbol of this Pharaoh impaled, this defeated enemy impaled on a stake, that all may see the victory of God in his defeat of this false power, and all who look on it are healed. This is God saying, here is my defeated enemy, not just my defeated enemy, your defeated enemy on display. God displays it on this stake, a display of his victory. And so this is what Jesus is referring back to in his conversation with Nicodemus. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus had already referred back to the Old Testament to explain who he was. To Ezekiel 36, he told Nicodemus that Jesus was here to cleanse and to renew, to purify from sin and to give new hearts. And so here, Jesus refers back, as I said, to Numbers chapter 21 to explain himself. Though the Israelites had rebelled against God, turned away from him in the most dramatic way possible, what did God do? He made a way through this bronze serpent for them not to be swallowed up by their rebellion. He responded in grace, right? He responded in grace and in a dramatic way. Jesus says here that he is the true and better bronze serpent. 
He is the true and better bronze serpent. That he has come into a world where we are stuck in a cycle of lies, where we want the wrong things, where we are bitten and being destroyed by the things we want, right? And that Jesus, like the bronze serpent, it becomes the symbol of God's victory over the false power of this world. The bronze serpent was a symbol of the victory of God over Pharaoh. Well, Jesus on the cross is the true judgment of God against the false claims, the sin of this world. And Jesus says that he will be lifted up, not only to be a place of healing for some people who've been bitten by snakes, but that Jesus will become what? The source of eternal life. That is what it means for Jesus to be the true and better uh, bronze serpent. He is God declaring his victory and inviting all who look to him into that victory to claim it as their own. And Jesus further impacts what that means. First, he tells us what that's rooted in. Look back at verse 16 here in John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave. God, deeply rooted in his own love for his world that he's created, the world that has turned its back on him at every, at every opportunity, who, uh, this world where we have turned toward each other in war and hostility, what does God do in response to this? He gives. He pours out of his generosity. God so loved the world that he gave. This, above anything else, should prove to us Prove to us emphatically that the love of God for us is not something founded ever on our, our, on our own worthiness. It's not something that God looks at us and he says, man, I really got to give him love. Now, God's love is something that goes before our senses of worthiness. God's love is not prompted by anything out of himself. In a sense, God, the self-sufficient God, is an overflowing fountain of love within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. And what happens in creation and redemption is that love of God spills out to include us. And that becomes who we are. That becomes our reality. And what does God do in his generosity? Look at verse 16 again. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God's one and only son. It tells us right here something is utterly unique about who Jesus is. Now, I've said it time and time again. Jesus is not just another religious leader in a long line of religious leaders. Something utterly unique is going on in Jesus. And if we've read through the Gospel of John, starting in chapter 1, we know that's true. It says that Jesus was the Word who was with God in the beginning, who was God, and the Word became flesh. That in Jesus, in a sense, God and humanity meet in one person. And that tension that we talked about, between God's love for us and the reality of our sin that must be judged, it, it meets in this one person of Jesus. That's how the mercy of God and the justice God, of God meet because God condemns in Jesus our sin. Jesus, the true human, is punished for our human sin. And God, or Jesus, the true God, is the one who forgives. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, not just a good man and not just God pretending to be a human, but this utterly unique one and only Son of God come into our world to be the place where the tension can be resolved, where we can truly be brought back to God and reconciled to Him. Jesus is God become man. 
in Jesus, God and us meet and we in this one person. It's almost like the entire drama of human history taking place in this one man. And what spills out from him, he becomes, a, in a sense, like the, the fountainhead. He becomes the, our federal head, some theologians have said. But what happens is he becomes uh, our representative. He becomes our substitute. And so what flows down from him, what he has earned and what he has deserved, comes to us by grace. And in this God-man, the tension between God's mercy for his people and his justice against sin that runs throughout the Old Testament meets and is resolved. It's resolved. Which is why verse 17 continues on. Look, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. In Jesus, God has made a way for his justice to be satisfied and for him to be gracious. We read about that in Romans chapter 3. Remember, earlier in our service, uh, during our confession of sin and assurance of pardon, we read Romans chapter 3 where it speaks about through Jesus, God becomes just the one who rightly judges sin, and the justifier of those who come to him by faith. Elsewhere in Romans, it says that God justifies the ungodly. We're vindicated in God's sight and seen as righteous. Not because we've earned it, not because we've done anything to deserve it, not because we have something we're carrying to God for him to be impressed by, not because we've merited it. But we're seen as righteous in God's sight because Jesus has. And in Jesus, God has rightly judged our sin by removing it from us, visiting his wrath upon Jesus, and so satisfying his justice against our sin, and in turn giving us his grace. Giving us his grace. As I said earlier about Numbers 21, it's not just a cool magic trick. The bronze serpent wasn't just God having a cool idea. It was a symbolic display of God's victory over Pharaoh, over the false kingdoms of this world. This symbol of Pharaoh, the serpent, the symbol of the greatest power at that time the world had ever known is impaled upon a stake that God declares his victory over that false power. Well, think about that while we consider the crucifixion of Jesus. The crucifixion is painted as a judgment. And we know that that Jesus was falsely put on trial and falsely condemned by the false power of this world. And then what happened to Jesus was truly the greatest injustice because he was a man without sin who had not committed crime, but yet he was put to death as a criminal. But what Scripture also says is that what God did through that incredible act of injustice was make things right for us. That in the judgment, false judgment of this world against Jesus, God rightly judges this world, judges our sin by removing it from us. And so that's why we can say with this passage this morning that we are not condemned. We are not condemned even though our sin may be great. We do not stand condemned. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus Christ. The wrath that our sins should have earned has been exhausted and poured out. There's no more wrath for your sin. There is no more wrath for your sin if you have come to Jesus by faith. But here's the good news. 
to amplify that a bit. It's not just that we get a clean slate. It's not just we come to Jesus and we are forgiven of sins we've committed and now we get a second chance. Notice it does not say that God so loved the world that he he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might receive a second chance, right? No, it says that we might receive what? Eternal life. Eternal life. Because we aren't simply forgiven of the wrong things that we've done. We're united to Jesus Christ by faith. So that all is his, all that is his by right becomes ours by grace. And for us, this becomes an inexhaustible source of life as it speaks about eternal life. And one of the things that that includes is our righteous standing before God. We're not just given a clean slate. We are positively recognized as righteous. It's, it's like we had a million dollar debt that was paid off and then $4 million were put in our bank account. We're not just set back to get be, be given a second chance so we can now earn God's love. No, we are entered into this incredible life, eternal life, where the inexhaustible grace of God is ours, never to be run out, never to stop coming to us. When we say eternal life, this is what I used to think when I was a kid. When we say eternal life, we sometimes just think life that doesn't end, right? Like we say eternal life and we think just really, really long Life, But that's not what it's talking about here. Through Scripture, uh, the Scripture promises that we will be with God forever. The focus when it says eternal life is not on length. It's on quality, for lack of a better description. When Jesus talks about eternal life, it's an extended promise from Him to us that we will receive the fulfillment of our longings, that we will receive a joy that cannot be extinguished by a life in this world, that we will receive a love that will not let us go. Why? Because the eternal life that we receive is from the eternal God. The eternal God is uh, eternally loved and eternally loving within himself, as I mentioned earlier, and that spills out to us. And because it's rooted in who he is, the eternal love that he has in himself and for himself, it spills out to us and it'll never run out. That's the eternal life. The joy that is God's in Jesus comes down to us and becomes our joy. That's eternal life. Not just long life, but an eternal quality of life that can outlast even the worst stuff in this world because the worst stuff in this world cannot last because God is faithful. God is faithful. The bronze serpent in Numbers 21, it could only heal those who had been bitten by snakes, of their snake bites. And that was, that was great, but it pointed forward to Jesus, the true and better bronze serpent, with a true and better victory, not just a victory over some snake bites, not just a symbolic victory over the power of this world, but a victory that brings to us salvation that runs even to the furthest part of sin's impact as we sing in Joy to the World, as far as the curse of sin is found, is how far the grace of God flows out to us. One of the ways we talk about that as a church, we talk about this this eternal life that becomes ours, is, uh, and, and if you've got your bulletin in front of you, or a bulletin from the past, you'll see it. We talk about the gospel being good news for the lost, found, city, and world. How is it good news for the lost? Well, we have the promise of what? A new record before God. We've already spoken about this. God forgives us of sin because of Jesus, forgives us of sin, and credits us as righteous in His sight, only because of the righteousness of God credited to us. And so in place of our bad record, we have a new record before God. This is part of that eternal life. 
Good news for the found. Whether we've come to Jesus one time, two times, a thousand times, ten thousand times. What becomes now our great hope is that God has promised to give us a new heart in place of our corrupt hearts that love the wrong things, that chase after the wrong things. God is doing a transforming work, making Jesus and his grace our motivation and our way of thriving and flourishing in this world. That's part of the eternal life, our new record, our new heart. What else? New community. Good news for our city, a new community. No matter how great the cities and the places in this world that we live may be, God gives us the promise of a new community in the church, a community of people that surround these gospel promises where we are not valued based on what we bring to the table, where we're not valued by what we have in our pocket, where we're not valued by what we can do, where our sense of worth and worthiness is founded upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ, period. And we become a community of people who that's true of together. And this world, into this bad, bad world, we give the promise of a new world that Jesus has promised to make all things new. And we'll only see the fullness of that when he returns to make all things that are wrong right, where he comes to make all that is sad untrue, where he makes all that is crooked straight but we have the invitation right now to live in hope of that reality and to live as emissaries and witnesses of the Jesus that is making all things new in our, right now, even in our broken world. This is eternal life, a new record, a new heart, a new community, a new world. This is what we receive from Jesus when we look upon him. He who resolved this tension, he who became the place where mercy and justice meet. Amen. Amen. So, if you're hearing this today, and this is new stuff, you've never believed this before, you've never placed your faith on G in Jesus before, I invite you to consider the reality of God's love demonstrated in Jesus coming into this world, what he faced in his resurrection, I mean, in his crucifixion, what he declared in victory in his resurrection, what he promises to you. Come to him by faith. Find yourself forgiven and declared righteous in God's sight. Come to him by faith and turn away from the things that you're chasing after that can never satisfy. But if you're hearing this this morning and this is something you've believed before, the call to us is to never stop coming back to this inexhaustible fountain of God's grace for us. This is ours. This is ours.